When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. You might want to warn Kira before she sees her file. Warn me? About what? Oh, uh, Dax and Mr. O'Brien discovered some of the last prefect's personal files. There's a file on you, but you may find it disappointing. <laughs> I'm a big girl, Commander. A minor operative whose activities are limited to running errands for the terrorist leaders? Major, when you're through feeling underappreciated, perhaps you'd join me in welcoming the Kai aboard. Well, Bruce, here we are. We are finally getting to the end of the Cardassian occupation of Bajor. It has been a long 40 plus years. My goodness. Wow, you sound like a Bajoran. <laughs> Is it Bajoran or Bajoran? It depends who you ask. <laughs> it, it could also be Bajora if you uh, ask certain people. So That's true. Yeah, who knows? Well, welcome, everybody, to the Positively Trek Book Club. I'm Dan Gunther. With me, of course, is Bruce Gibson. Bruce, are you ready to talk Resistance and Cardassians and horrible Cardassian occupations? I guess I'm ready. I mean, I have no other choice, right? We're already recording. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's do it. Yeah. So we are talking about the third and final novel in the Taroknar trilogy, Dawn of the Eagles. And this series, as I've said, chronicles the Cardassian occupation of Bajor, kind of a lead up to Deep Space Nine. And yeah, in this final book, we're finally getting to the end of the occupation. And, and finally, one of these books has a happy ending. So, you know, spoiler alert there, folks. But uh, I feel like that's not too much of a spoiler. I had no idea it was going to end this way. No idea. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, uh, the first part of this episode will be spoiler-free. We'll talk and give kind of our broad thoughts on the on the novel and uh, whether we recommend it or not. And then after we give you a warning, uh, we'll we'll take a brief break and we'll have a spoiler-filled discussion of the book. So let's start with the back cover blurb for this novel, and it's written by S.D. Perry and Britta Dennison, Star Trek Taroknor, Dawn of the Eagles. As violence all across Bajor continues to escalate, Cardassian forces tighten their grip on the captive planet, driving back the resistance at every turn. But on Taroknor and elsewhere, the winds of change are stirring, the beginnings of a hurricane that will alter the landscape of the occupation. And while secret dealings, shifting alliances, and personal demons buoy the wings of revolution, a mysterious shape-shifting life form begins a journey that will decide the fate of worlds. 
Does that uh, does that sound like the novel you just read there, Bruce? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Well, we'll get into that for sure. <laughs> I mean, it's very dramatic. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Wings of revolution. Winds of change, the beginnings of a hurricane. Wow, they're really going for the the flowery language there. Yeah, that does not feel like what I just read, at least for me. I mean, not in those kinds of words. I wouldn't describe it that way. I wouldn't say that, you know, Odo begins a journey that will decide the fate of worlds in this novel, you know? (laughs) Well, you got to get people to pick up the book, right? Uh, That's true. (laughs) But it's worth it, I think, so. Well, we also have uh, suggested viewing for this novel. This is something we started a few episodes back. Episodes that might enhance your enjoyment of the novel. And of course, the entire series of Deep Space Nine is probably in this list, but particular to this novel i'd say past prologue which is the actually the second episode of deep space nine right after the pilot and we get introduced to a character named tana los and the Kon ma which is the resistance cell that he was a part of that figures into this book a little bit for sure and uh, definitely the episode necessary evil from season two which is Primarily a flashback episode showing Odo becoming the security chief on Deep Space Nine under the Cardassians investigating the murder of a Bajoran collaborator. So those events figure heavily into this novel and we dig into that a little bit deeper. Profit and Loss from season two as well, which features Natima Lang and Quark being reunited after some of the events in this novel happen. And uh, The Collaborator, both of these last two Episodes are ones that I've recommended for previous books as well, but The Collaborator, a lot of the events they talk about there, we get to see play out in this novel as well. The Begotten, which is a Dr. Mora Pole and Odo episode from season five of Deep Space Nine, just gives kind of a, a bit of an overview of what happened to Odo when he was working with Dr. Mora at the Science Institute and stuff. And then finally, I included on this list the episode Nothing Human from Voyager's fifth season, in which you meet Dr. Krell Moset, or at least a holographic version of him. So a lot of influence from that episode on this novel as well. So as some of you may know from past episodes, the last time I've watched Deep Space Nine from episode one to the last one was in its original airing. I've never done a whole rewatch. I've bounced around to different episodes, but I'm determined to do an entire rewatch from season one to season seven. And I'm at the end of season one, but I haven't mm. watched in the last couple of weeks because I started realizing I'm going to start confusing things in this novel with things I'm watching on Deep Space Nine. So I decided to take a break on Deep Space Nine, which was unfortunate because at the same time, these episodes you were naming, I wanted to watch while I was reading the book or go back and rewatch, but I held off on that. I really wish I was already done with season two of my rewatch before I got to this novel. Yeah, I was actually admittedly curious, knowing that you were rewatching Deep Space Nine, I was wondering if you'd gotten to those episodes yet. So, nope. Uh, Yeah, so of this list, you would have fairly recently watched past prologue, I guess, but that's about it. That's about it, yeah. And then I thought, well, maybe I can binge watch real quick through season two, but again, I didn't have the time, but then I thought, well, I don't want to, again, confuse things I'm watching on screen with the novel, because that happens sometimes where I'm like, wait, did I just watch that or was it in the novel I just read? (laughs) You know? 
So oh. I, I took a break. But but because I read the novel, now when I go into these episodes, the novel will be fresh in my mind. And so that's going to be fun. That's pretty cool, too. I honestly don't know which I'd prefer, but that's really neat, having that fresh in your mind and being like, oh, that's the guy from that episode. And there's even like little name drops of various people that you might have even encountered in season one, because I don't know exactly what gets brought up or mentioned, but I think there's like... Uh, Minister Calum Apren gets mentioned at some point as being one of Bajor's first ministers or something like that. So that might have actually, now that I think about it, that might have been in past prologue that mm. like the Kone Ma assassinated him or something like that. Like, yeah. Yeah, I don't remember. I know that every name I would come up on in this novel made me think, is this a name I should know from some episode? <laughs> <laughs> There are quite a few and yeah, it's kind of nice when you, when you pick those up, but it's also, I don't think really necessary for the enjoyment of the novel. I do like that they use those names and tie it into the history. And, you know, a lot of people might say like, oh, they're name dropping, they're, they're doing too many little Easter eggs for fans. But in this case, to me, it makes sense because you're telling that history. So it makes sense that some of those players would figure into the Deep Space Nine story later. And it makes it more meaningful, I think, that those kind of references are peppered throughout. And in the back of the book, it lists all the characters, a little synopsis of each character and what episode, and even not just, you know, the Bajorans, and then they separate that into the Cardassians, a list of them, and places and other things, even food, you know, so there's a lot of references in the back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that little glossary at the back is is very helpful a lot of times, for sure, when you're going through and like, should I know that? Yeah. I know. I kept forgetting it was there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I read an ebook version for this one because I could not find my physical copy for some reason. But uh, so it made it a little difficult to refer back to that more so than you could just flip there in the physical book. So I did do that a lot less this time around than the first two. Yeah, I totally forgot until I got to the end of the book when I was reading. It, I was like, oh, yeah. This would have been helpful, but okay. Well, I think it's pretty obvious for me anyway, from my perspective, I recommend this novel. I've recommended the previous two. You got to see how the story ends, right? Or at least how the Deep Space Nine story begins, I guess. So yeah, I, I enjoyed this novel. Very similar to the second book where it's a lot of little vignettes that are kind of snapshots of things happening throughout the occupation with kind of threads that run through it for certain characters, but also just kind of what was going on on Cardassia at the time, what was going on on Bajor, what are the Aurelians doing at this period and all of this sort of stuff. So uh, it's a recommend for me. I really enjoyed this one. I would recommend it too. I would say now that I'm thinking about it, it probably is best that someone go through, if they want to get full enjoyment, you don't have to watch the episodes like you said, but if you really want to get a full enjoyment, I would recommend watching the episodes you listed, right? Because the way this book plays is it's threading those stories together and giving you kind of like, well, here's what happened in that episode. This was mentioned. So here's that event happening and this is how it plays out or this is how it played out because it was addressed in the novel. I mean, on the, on the show or something, you know what I'm saying? It's like in some ways it was like dancing around some of those things that were mentioned in an episode. Like for example, well, it's not really a spoiler, but 
you know, Odo first serving on the station, it was kind of jumped over because that's covered in an episode, but mm-hmm. it was like something I was waiting for when I was reading the book, you know? Right. That makes sense. Yeah. It's like filling in the little blanks, the little places in between. So it makes sense to watch the episodes and then read this. Yeah, exactly. That makes a lot of sense for sure. It's The books obviously are under the assumption that you're well-versed or, or at least have watched through Deep Space Nine. So you kind of know the broad strokes. And this one is just like, oh, these are the little bits that we didn't see or the little bits that kind of link everything together like you said so that makes a lot of sense yeah yeah but it's i mean definitely if you're a deep space nine fan this is a must read all three of them absolutely could not agree with that more well let's take a brief break here and when we come back uh we will get into spoilers for dawn of the eagles so consider this your warning and we'll be right back after this brief break This episode of Positively Trek is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Constitution class supporters, Jim Stoffel, Joyce Marin, Carl Morris, Dave Garcia, Rick Young, Paul D. Kinnear, John Blaber, and Jesse Earle. Thank you all so much for your support of Positively Trek. If you would like to become a patron of the show, go to patreon.com slash positivelytrek. You get early access to episodes, exclusive content, shoutouts, associate producer credits, and more. Once again, that's patreon.com slash positivelytrek. Thank you to each and every one of you. And now, let's fly. So this book covers basically the last decade of the Cardassian occupation of Bajor. And there's significant time jumps. I'd say not as big time jumps as there are in the second book, but we do get some big jumps. And one of the big things that's happening during this period is there's this detection grid that's been put around Bajor that they can detect ships flying and they can tell which ones are Cardassian and which ones are Bajoran. And then that expands later to also include people. They can tell where when adult Bajorans aren't where they're supposed to be and that sort of thing. So it's funny. One big part of this novel is like a few years of resistance cells just hiding out and not being able to go anywhere and this really kind of oppressive feeling. And that's, I'd say, kind of the mood that pervades much of this novel. It's kind of this very oppressive, very caged feeling. It's like the Cardassians have put a cage around Bajor and are not allowing the Bajorans any freedom or very little freedom whatsoever. It's what I imagined Bajor was like during the occupation. We heard so much about on the series. And when we went and read the first book, it's the Cardassians coming to Bajor for the first time and how things are starting up. And then the second book is like the in-between of these two stories. But this is how I always envisioned when I thought about the occupation of the things that took place before Deep Space Nine. And just to see these different cells and people hiding and fighting and, you know, resisting and dealing with all that. A lot of this felt like the rise of the resistance. Sounds like a Star Wars title. (laughs) It's like the rise of the resistance where the previous novels felt like it was the fall of Bajor. This felt like it was now the fighting that rises Bajor. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And we really, I mean, even the title kind of 
fits into that, you know, Dawn of the Eagles. We had, you know, Night of the Wolves and then Dawn of the Eagles. So it's, you know, coming out of this bleak night. And like I said at the start, this novel is going to have a happy ending, thankfully, because the last two, whew, those are, they're great books, great reads, but they're downers. I mean, there's no way you can tell the story of the occupation without it being a downer, obviously. But to get to this point and to see that rise of the resistance, as you put it there, it makes it worth it for sure, because you're definitely behind the Bajorans 100% here. Yeah, and I at times wasn't sure if I could trust every Bajoran, you know, because of just other things the other Bajorans were doing in past novels and such. And even though I knew how it was going to end, I kept expecting things to not go that well. And like, who can we trust and who can we not trust? And that's actually one of the things I really enjoyed about the story, too, is on a very basic level, you could put, you know, Cardassia on one side, Bajor on the other side and say bad guys and good guys, you know, like that's kind of the story we get in Deep Space Nine or the idea, kind of the the broad strokes of it. But when you dig down into the story and, and get down in the trenches with the resistance and even inside the minds of some of the Cardassians, it's not that simple. And that's that's been a constant throughout all of these novels, which I really appreciate. There are Bajorans that do some horrible things and there are Cardassians that do some great things, you know, and the occupation wouldn't have ended the way it did without the Bajorans and also wouldn't have happened without the actions of some Cardassians too. So it's really interesting to see how that all makes the story more complicated, which again, I think I've said in the past should be like the motto of deep space nine. It's complicated. It's not just <laughs> black and white. Well, because that's how life is, right? It's not mm -hmm. black and white. It's not, it's always complicated. You know, it, it's like you said, it's not as easy as say, these are the good guys. These are the bad guys. And if anything, just seeing that there's Cardassians that realize that what their people have been doing is in the wrong. And of course, there's going to be people that realize that, you know, I mean, I would like to think that if I was Cardassian, I wouldn't be supporting this the way my people have been handling things and taking over some planet and enslaving these people and treating them badly. And I mean, I just wouldn't I, I wouldn't want that. Like, that's not the way to handle it. And that's what we see in today's world. With everything. I mean, you look at every country, not everybody's on the same page. You know, some are mm -hmm. against what their government's doing. Others are for it. And when there's a change in power, then sometimes it's still there's people support and against. It doesn't matter. It's like a no win situation. It's funny. Speaking of characters that aren't black and white and, and things that are complicated, I want to talk a bit about Dr. Mora who is an interesting character. And we saw him in two episodes of Deep Space Nine. This is the Bajoran scientist who worked with Odo at the Bajoran Institute of Science. That whole thing, I remember you saying in the last novel that you wanted to see more of Odo and Dr. Mora working together. And this is kind of where we get this at the beginning of this novel, where they are working together, not as much as both Odo and Dr. Mora would like, though. Dr. Mora keeps getting pulled away to work on other things, including this detection grid that is responsible for killing many Bajorans. In a lot of Bajorans' minds, Dr. Mora would be a collaborator 
full stop. You know, he helped the Cardassians. You know, he was obviously forced to, but at the same time, someone would argue that he had a choice to walk away or be killed, you know, that kind of thing, rather than do this. But he decides to help the Cardassians. But what's interesting is he's responsible for bringing down the grid as well when he creates this secret code that he passes on to somebody who's a friend of somebody in resistant in the resistance and you know this really complicated trail of trying to get information out and he also sabotages the computer systems to mess up the the records and all that sort of stuff so again a complicated person here who doesn't want to give up some of the comfort he has but at the same time, when he sees the opportunity to atone for some of what he's done and make up for it, he takes that opportunity, which might explain a bit about why he's still around and still able to function in Bajoran society, as we see in Deep Space Nine. He obviously hasn't been tried and convicted as a collaborator, probably because of what he did to aid the resistance. Yeah, and I don't know how I feel about that because, like you said, he contributed to a lot of bad things on the Cardassian side that resulted in deaths. And so, yeah, now he's helping out, but, you know, couldn't he have done something sooner? Could have he, like, just sacrificed his life and got killed to prevent anything more dangerous from happening? I mean, but again, it's like everything, like you said, is not in black and white. You know, what's making him do what he's doing? Maybe, you know, he really doesn't have a choice. But but then again, you feel like he does. And but then he's also so caring for Odo. You know, mm-hmm. he seems like he's a caring person, but yet he brought about destruction in the things that he helped Cardassians with. You know, I don't know how I feel about his character. I felt the same way even just in watching the TV series. I wasn't sure if I really liked him or not. Yeah, it's funny. I've been looking into, this is a a bit of an aside, but uh, Star Trek trading cards. And in uh, they've done various series called Heroes and Villains. And they have different characters with red cards and different characters with blue cards. And I'm very curious. I don't know the answer to this. I'd love to go back and look at that set and see if Dr. Mora was a hero or a villain. (laughs) <laughs> oh gosh. Oh, I'm going to guess it's probably a hero. I'm but... curious. I'm curious enough that I'm I'm going to look this yes, up. Yes, right look now. it up. <laughs> Dr. Mora Pole, card number 35, villain. Oh, really? Interesting. See, that's that's kind of how I feel. Yeah. And that's interesting because heroes and villains is a very binary black and white thing, right? Here you're either a hero or you're a villain. So it's interesting they had to put him into one of those boxes. They had to pick which one he is. But like we said, it's complicated, right? So is he a villain? In the first episode he's in, he's an antagonist to Odo. But that's I guess that's enough to make him a villain in this card set, right? So you're taking something that is very complicated and putting it into a binary black and white hero villain thing. So that's interesting. It's like they voted guilty. (laughs) you know (laughs) yeah exactly because i was feeling more villain but i thought no they'll probably because he helped with odo and every you know they'll probably give him the good guy status Mm. so that is interesting yeah well we'll talk about odo as well too because he very much falls into this category as well i think where he kind of mirrors dr mora a little bit in that 
he works for the Cardassians. He's a security officer for the Cardassians. And we see this explored in episodes of Deep Space Nine, like one of the early episodes, A Man Alone, where the Bajorans ask, why is he still here? He was the security guy under the Cardassians. They left. Why is he like, how do we know he's not a collaborator? So that question has come up in the series. And it's interesting that Odo kind of walks that line as well. And he's never sure what side he's on until the very end of the story as well. One of the characters said, and I don't recall who it was, but they pointed out that Odo doesn't really work on a side. You know, he's not Mm -hmm. in support of the Cardassians or the Bajorans. He's just doing his job as a security officer. He's just doing what he sees is the right thing. And it doesn't feel like he's really choosing sides. But to your point, he starts to realize how one side is in the wrong and he should be supporting the other side to the point that when we get towards the end of the novel, that good side, the people who know him are supporting him because he doesn't feel like he's going. He feels like the Bajorans are going to think he's a bad guy. Like, what's he going to do now? Now that the Cardassians left, where's he going to go? Because they're going to associate him with the Cardassians. Yeah. And based on what we see in the series, like if we go by just the series, that's always kind of been a question I had is how is he able to stay in that position? Because the Bajorans were so quick to prosecute collaborators, people who worked with the Cardassians. The fact that they trust Odo enough to keep him in that position was always just a little bit of a question for me watching the show. Like they they offer those explanations here and there where they say, you know, he was always fair and he never picked a side and blah, blah, blah. But he was still the security chief of Terok Nor under Gul Dukat and was responsible for you know, implementing sentences that executed Bajorans, for example, and stuff. So like, how is he still there? And this book, I think more than anything else, makes me get behind that decision. Like, okay, I get it now. You know, that he had people advocating for him who he had worked with that knew him and saw him help the resistance in these ways. And that's another thing. We never really got that in Deep Space Nine that Odo helped the resistance or anything like that. But they do have him do that a bit in this book. And I think, honestly, a lot of that is to kind of put more of the him being on the side of the Bajorans in his ledger than he had otherwise, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Because it really associates him more with the Bajorans and helping them at the beginning. And then he finds himself in this place where he's on the station, he's working for the Cardassians, but then he's helping the Bajorans and seeing the Cardassians are wrong. And I mean, we know because we're reading the book and so we're taking this journey with him, but others aren't around him all the time to know. But we as the readers know that he's really more on the Bajoran side and he never really took the Cardassian side of things. And that's something that Kira recognized in him too. Because when mm-hmm. she became the major that's going to help lead the station, and when the Federation comes in, she's the one who says, Odo, why don't you come with me? Because I know I can trust you. You know the station better than anybody. I, and you, know, you would be a perfect security chief. So it's good to see that it's 
that's Kira that brings him along. That's why he's there. Yeah. And that makes sense. And I, I really appreciated that. And it had the feeling of like, and like you said, we're kind of jumping right to the end of the novel here. Kira's like, hey, I'm in this cool new club. Odo, you should come too. It's going to be fun. <laughs> it was like that. Because it's she like standing there like a computer terminal, like people are lining up to join the, the military or what do they call it? The, um... the Bajoran militia. Yeah. Yeah. People are lined up to join the Majoran militia, and she's like, oh, no, over, over here. Are you here to join? I mean, hey, this would be great. She starts entering his information. Hey, you can come to the station with me. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, uh, yeah, okay. Um, because, you know, part of the reason he initially went to the station, too, was to be closer to outer space where he came from and to learn where his people might be. And because there there's visitors coming to the station and stuff. So, you know, he wants, he wants, so he's, he's more than happy to go back to Tarok Nor or as it will shortly become known, of course, deep space nines. So. Yes. As Kira says, and you know, the Federation is going to rename it something that they want to name it. <laughs> That'll suit their agenda. She yeah, said, I, I like right. that. Yeah. Well, let's uh, move on then to talk a little bit about Kira because she of course has a large part in this novel. She's a member of the Shakar resistance cell and plays a pivotal role in a lot of the goings on. But what really struck me is the way the authors tied her to Ducat and using Kira Maru, like we talked about in the last novel, Kira's mother and Dukat's relationship with her as kind of the reason why Dukat has taken a special interest in Kira. And this was the thing that I was alluding to in the last novel that I thought it was in the last novel and I was waiting for it and it wasn't there, but <laughs> it was in this novel where they reveal it. And there's a great scene at the start of a season one episode called Battle Lines, where they find this file in the prefect's computer systems, in Ducat's old computer system, that has some files on Bajoran terrorists and stuff. And the note in Kira's file is that she was a minor operative whose activities are limited to running errands for the terrorist leaders. <laughs> and when Kira finds this out, she is mad. <laughs> And I love that they tied that into this. Like, that's just one of my favorite little things that Ducat's like, oh, a high risk person who's taken part in many battles and cost many Cardassian lives. Oh, delete, 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 delete. And he put, he typed that in there to protect her. Like, oh man, that's hilarious. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Cause I recently saw that episode, you know, doing the rewatch. So yeah, it's funny to see that there it's really disturbing Ducat's relationship with Kira or what he thinks of yeah. her you know and it's just like he had this affair with her mother yet he feels this sense of protecting her children her child Kira yet he killed her mother you know he had her put to death you know it's like and it's disturbing that he's like oh Kira's that well we got to take care of her I, I was like, wait, he had his way with her mother. Is he going to try to have his way with Kira? <laughs> uh, yeah, there was that disturbing bit where you get kind of access to Ducat's internal monologue. Yes. And he's like, I want to be this parental figure to her and look out for her. And I have some other feelings about her. But I, I, I'm, I'm, anyway, I'm, I'm not going to think about that right now. I'm going to. It's like, oh, God, yeah. God, no. Yeah, I shouldn't be referring to her as Kira because they're both Kira, the Narice in this right, case. Right, yes. <laughs> you know, but <laughs> yeah, it was just, 
I, you know, I think I would have liked to have seen maybe some more interactions between these two characters. I think I would have liked to have been more disturbed. Not to say that I want him to have his way with her, but just I want to be even more creeped out to like really not like this guy. And even though he's trying to be so nice to her, I want her to be so put off by him. Yeah, I think they threaded the needle pretty well with Kira and Dukat in this novel because you couldn't really have them interact too much because it was clear they hadn't interacted very much when we see the series. Yeah. The one thing that's interesting to me is there's a scene in the season two episode, necessary evil during the flashback portions to during the occupation where Odo is interrogating Kira about her possible involvement with the murder of Vatrick and Dukat walks in and is like, is this the, is this her? And Odo's like, I'm not sure yet. Ducat's like, are you sure? And he's acting like kind of all creepy around Kira. And the implication on the show is this is the first time they've ever been in close proximity, which is probably true. But to add to that scene now, this layer that Ducat knows who this is and is like sizing her up and, oh, it's so creepy. Yeah. Mm -mm. Yeah, he is a creep. (laughs) For sure. Yeah. That's one of many words that can be used for Ducat. (laughs) Yeah. But your point is is right. I mean, even though I'd love to see some scenes with them, it's not appropriate based on what was established in the show. So I guess they couldn't really go there. But by avoiding that, they did a really good job. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because you do feel, you know, what his thoughts are about Kira and her thoughts on him. And yeah. It's uh, quite interesting. Yeah. And they come close because Ducat is, he's sent Basso, his Bajoran lackey, to bring Kira to him, basically, just as she's like escaping on this transport, thanks to Odo and uh, Gull Rousseau. I guess not a Gull at that time, but this Rousseau guy. And uh, yeah, that's, it's close. Like Ducat wants her brought to his office finally so that he can, you know, but they just avoid it there. And, and Kira manages to escape by, uh, well, killing the Cardassian pilot and killing Basso as well. (laughs) So yeah, Kira's not, not the gentlest person as, as we know for sure. So yeah. Yeah. And you know what? That was another thing. I expected her to be even more ruthless than we got in here. I don't know why. I just really expected her to, almost be a character that I wouldn't like at this time. And Mm. that maybe there's something in her that, that changes to be a little more of the character that we like, you know, I just expected her to have, I don't know. I, I just, I don't know for whatever reason, I thought maybe she would just be so ruthless and mean that she's not the Kira we know, you know, Mm. but she was pretty much the Kira we do know. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. And I, does that mean that like she's harder edged in the series than we give her credit for? Or is she too soft here? I'm not sure. Mm. But as a character, I've always loved Kira. I've always thought she was just such a great character. So I'm I'm all about learning every little bit we can about her and stuff. So I, I, I personally really liked her characterization in these novels. Yeah, let me just say that Kira, I was never like, a big fan of Kira. It wasn't that I didn't like her, 
But, you know, as the series went on, I liked her character more and more to the point that once we got towards the end, she was becoming one of my favorite characters on the series. And then by the time we were getting into the post DS9 novels where she's commanding the station and such, she started to become my favorite DS9 character. It's like it took some time, but she really started to grow on me. Nice. Yeah, that might be the case for me as well. And then just like retroactively watching the early episodes, I've come to like newly appreciate her character in those first few seasons as well. But the first time through, I, I can't, honest, can't honestly say if I if I really liked the character or not, but she definitely did become one of my favorites for sure. All I think about sometimes, my favorite thing that she ever said was in the very first episode where she's like, there's your wormhole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh i kira in emissary is terrific i really like her <laughs> yeah. what did i tell you jasad there's your wormhole <laughs> can you tell i've watched it many times you have yes <laughs> so moving on from kira and these these kind of complicated characters that aren't black and white uh let's talk about dr krell moset who, you know, they use his character to talk about complicated things and how everything's not black and white, but I would characterize him as pretty starkly evil, I think. This is the character that was introduced in Star Trek Voyager, that episode Nothing Human. We see a character from previous novels, Khaleesi, not the mother of dragons, a different Khaleesi, uh, who is working with Dr. Moset at this hospital on Bajor, ostensibly to produce a Fostosa virus vaccine and inoculating Bajorans against this, this sickness or whatever. But we find out that what he's actually doing is perfecting a sterilization technique, one that he says will he'll give to everyone on Bajor and, and within a generation, Bajor will be completely sterile and everyone will have died out. You know, we'll have the workers for another generation, but they won't be able to have children and their 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 current children will not be able to have children. And that'll be the end of it. And this was so horrifying, like just how clinically and detached he talks about this, like well, we, we don't want them to get cancerous tumors, so we need to per, we need to perfect this so it's as humane as possible, and so we'll have strong workers, but uh, they won't be able to have children, and that'll be the end of the entire Bajoran civilization. Yeah, this is the storyline oh. that creeped me out the most. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, because instead of just saying, let's kill them, it's almost like we'll give them a slow death. I mean, they'll be half happy and healthy and whatever they just can't you know have babies and so they'll eventually die off over time that's humane right we're not hurting anyone no, you know we're not torturing anyone to make this happen they're not even aware of it's going to happen it just they'll just notice that they're not able to have babies and it's just yeah it was just so creepy because it just seems so logical to him you know it's just that's just that's a day's work right there you know, oh. uh, it was so, ugh, yeah. Mm -mm. But thankfully that didn't play out all the way. Yeah, that was so brutal. And and so Khaleesi is, is helping him and she's not fully aware at first of what's going on. But when he, when she finds out, you know, she's kind of plagued by 
these thoughts. Like there's this moment, and this was such a chilling moment in the novel where they're administrating these vaccines to children. And this girl asks her, will it hurt? And she thinks in her mind, well, not today. It won't hurt today. It'll hurt way later in the future. Right. And she's imagining her finding out that she's barren and will not be able to produce children at some point in the distant future. And that moment plagues her. Like it keeps coming back to her to the point where she knows she has to do something about this. And again, this is one of the Cardassians that basically saves the Bajoran people through her actions. So is she a hero or a villain? Wonder what her card is, if there is even a card. <laughs> yeah. And that's another one that that's really complicated because in order to kind of cover her tracks and, and save her own future, or she attempts to save her own future, she sells out her friend from a previous novel who has become Astraea. We talked about previously the leader of the Aurelian faith, or she tries to sell her out. It's unsuccessful, and she's killed. Yeah. Khaleesi is killed by the Obsidian Order when the information turns out to not be helpful because the Aurelians managed to escape. But so, yeah, is she a hero or is she cold blooded because she was going to do that to her friend or her former friend? You know, she, she believes that the Cardassia is the state is right and must do what it needs to do, except for this one area where she decides to save the Bajorans. So I don't know. It's yeah. complicated, right? Well, in my mind, my feelings are that she comes across to me reading it as a hero because she stopped this from continuing, you know, that there is going to be future generations of Bajorans. Now, she was involved in it in the beginning, and to your point, she wasn't even really all that aware about it, about what was going on, but she did at least when she knew what was happening, knew what she was doing, turned that around. And her consciousness was telling her this was wrong. That's why she's having all these dreams and such. So I was really rooting for her, you know? Mm -hmm. I was like, yes, you know, let's let's get in there and, and, and make this right. But yeah, that scene with the, the little girls, this going to hurt. I mean, that gets back to what I said about, you know, Mosette, just like, it doesn't hurt now. It's going to hurt later. You're just not going to feel it in the pain way that you think, you know, <laughs> uh, it's going to be emotionally painful later, but they won't know how, why it happened or how it happened. It just will happen to them. Yeah. That was so tough. That was, that was the hardest part of the novel for me, for sure. So, yeah. yeah. And then, yeah. Thinking of the Voyager episode, the the rage that the Bajoran crew member feels uh, towards Krell Moset, you you understand it here, you understand why he's such a, a a horrible figure in in Bajoran life at this time. It's just so awful. <laughs> well, the good news right now, I'm just realizing since I'm not doing a Voyager rewatch yet. I'm going to go back and watch this Voyager episode now. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, absolutely. And and yeah, there's there's allusions to other stuff that he does that they talk about in the Voyager episode. Experiments on live Bajorans with polytrinic acid. And it's just, it's really terrible, horrible stuff. So, oh, it's 
chilling. Like, you know, obviously Dr. Mangala kind of is the figure that we think of that are, is kind of along the same lines here. And there's definite parallels there. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. Okay. Let's move on. <laughs> yeah. Let's move on. Agreed. So we've got the events of the Deep Space Nine episode, The Collaborator, which is a really good episode. I think a lot of people don't think of it when they think of some of the best episodes, but basically that episode is uh, the election of the next Kai of Bajor and Burial is the front runner. But in that episode, it comes to light that Burial is a collaborator because he gave away the location of Opaka's son's resistance cell in order to save the lives of Bajorans in these villages. And we find out in that episode, of course, that it wasn't actually Burial that did that, but he has to take the blame for it because the person who actually did it was Kai Opaka herself. And uh, that episode is terrific. It's so good. Um, even though it ends with Win becoming Kai, that's, oh, it's so terrible. <laughs> oh, another creepy thing. <laughs> oh, it's awful. <laughs> I'm glad we didn't get more of her in this, much more of her in this anyway. Which I was surprised. I was really expecting to see more of her and it just never really happened. Yeah, I kind of thought so too. I guess, you know, she she talks big about what she did during the occupation to protect Bajorans and stuff, but I feel like she spent most of this probably hiding somewhere and yeah, just staying out of harm's way because we don't see much of her for sure. Yeah. But yeah, we get to see uh, Burial and Opaka and, and all of this happen. And and that was a horrible event, obviously. We have these villagers who are waiting to be killed because no one's going to give away the location of this resistance cell until Opaka herself finally does and they're spared. But they're not happy about it because they're seeing this resistance cell get destroyed. And it turns out this is kind of the event that is the turning point of the war against the Cardassian occupation because it galvanizes Bajor in a way that nothing else could. And there's this whole thing with the Valo 2 colony and the guy who won't risk coming into the Bajoran system to bring weapons. And then he finds out that the Kai's son's resistance cell has been destroyed and shows up with a freighter full of weapons right away. It's like... That's what did it, right? And it's interesting that we had this talked about in a Deep Space Nine episode, but we find out here that it really is the turning point of the resistance. Yeah, and Barrow even questions Opaka on this. Like, why would you let your son die? Why would you ha have this happen? And she says, well, because, you know, it's the will of the prophets. I have to go with the will. I mean, she's torn up about it. But, you mm -hmm. know, the vision, the things that she knows that this is this is the direction that has to happen to make the the wrongs now turn into the rights, that everything goes in the direction that Bajor needs to go into and everything that you just described to take place. This has to happen. So it's the sacrifice that her, she makes about her son, you know, but at the same time. I hadn't thought about it till now, but I think she knows her son would agree to that, you know, that he mm -hmm. would sacrifice himself to save Bajor if he knew that this has to play out for these events to happen. And what what's interesting about that being the turning point is it all kind of, it relates everything together. And it's one of those things that I'm just like, 
This is really clever how they've done this in this book because it's Ducat's fatal error here, basically, that causes this resistance cell to be destroyed, which leads to the end of the occupation. Because the resistance cell that they determine is probably responsible for what they're they're going to destroy them for is Kira's resistance cell. And he's like... No, 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 no. We're not going to destroy them. That that area has resources we need. Pick another one. Oh, right. what about this one here? And so it's because of Kira and that weird relationship Ducat has with her family that leads Ducat to make that decision, which leads to that happening, which leads to the end of the occupation, which is wild. And I'm like, yes. that's so crazy. And I love it. And he blames other Cardassians for him making the bad moves because, you know, he would... The moves he would make, you know, or what his gut tells him, but he always has to do what other Cardassians want him to do. And it's it's all their fault, not his. That's yeah. not true. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there, there's one brief moment where Ducat is thinking to himself. He, like, even says, like, oh, maybe that was a little bit of a mistake. But he immediately backs away from it. He's like, no, no, no. Uh, I, I wouldn't make a mistake. It was He almost learned from something, but just didn't quite get there. And that's another thing that this book answers to me. I, I always wondered why did the Cardassians leave Tarok Nor there? Like you'd think they would have like blown it up or something like that. It's almost like, you know how Cisco, when they lose the station to the Dominion and the Cardassians, he leaves his baseball behind and Ducat says, it's Cisco letting me know he'll be back. This is like Ducat basically leaves the station there because he's like, I'll be back someday. Yeah. I'll be back. I want my station here. I'll be back. I love that. That's so great. So Ducat. <laughs> yeah. It's just, you know, he knows better than anybody. And it's like, he doesn't want to leave. And it's like, yeah, you know what? I'll work my way back. I need to leave this here. Yeah. This is my, this is my thumbprint on this planet even though it's not on the planet but in this sector you know it's like i'll be back and he does <laughs> kind of yeah come back <laughs> eventually yep yeah. it, it really like after reading these novels re-watching deep space nine which i have done since reading these novels the first time way back when it's interesting to see that in context and see that first episode where ducat walks in and says this used to be my office you know and Cisco's like, oh, well, it's mine now <laughs> and all this stuff. Yeah. It's, yeah, remember, it's interesting. I remember watching that episode the first time and, and I've seen that episode several times since, but I always got the impression in that scene that he never really wanted to leave, you know, mm -hmm. like, yeah, this used to be my office. I kind of want it back. <laughs> you know, I always mm -hmm. kind of got that impression. Yeah, and that bit in the book here where he looks around the office and he's like, every single thing in this office was made especially for me. Like the way the desk is, the way the window is, all of that was to my specifications. This is my office. This is how I envisioned it. And that got me to thinking that like every time he comes back to talk to Cisco in that office. That must be what's going through his head that like Cisco is sitting in that chair that was perfectly tailored for my butt and like that desk that's at the exact right height for me. And like, Oh, that must just eat at him. <laughs> I was just thinking, have I ever felt that way when I've seen somebody in an old office of mine and not really because 
the chair was never tailor-made for me and the office wasn't tailor-made for me. You know? <laughs> and it looks different now that somebody else is there. It doesn't even feel like my old office anymore. But for him, yeah, that that was tailor-made for him. That was his domain. He was the the leader of that whole station. So, yeah. Yeah, which must have like made that Cisco leaving that baseball just eat at him even more, you know. Right. He thinks of that as his office now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, so we get the the Cardassians are leaving. This is the final kind of push. Bajor fights back. There's a global uprising. And when the Federation gets wind of that, they, they're asked by the Bajorans or by representatives of Bajor, like, we're going to need help. We're going to need a framework for our government. We need that kind of assistance after this is all said and done. And we get that impression of course we know for a fact of course later on the federation is coming they're going to come in and help sort things out and that kind of brings us up to mere days before deep space nine premieres i guess i was kind of surprised it got up that close i was really thinking that we might end this the year before mm-hmm. you know but you're right it comes up really close to the events of the first episode and but I like that. It also makes me realize that Kira and Odo weren't on the station for very long, which makes sense because they're cleaning up the station. It's not working all that right. So they wouldn't have been there for a long period of time. I think I would like to see maybe just a little more and maybe not in this novel. So I'm cl- glad it's not in here, but maybe some other novel or short story that shows the the conversations between Bajor and the Federation and what the Federation decided to do and how they're going to come about. Like, you know, like the talks between the two that led up to this moment. It's like the in-between point between this novel and the first episode. Yeah, that's interesting. As you were starting to say that, I was thinking like a short story showing Odo and Kira going up to the station for the first time or something like that too. Yeah. Seeing what they have to work with and all of that. Yeah. It's interesting. There's a lot of just little bits in there that would be really cool to see what's going on, both like the large geopolitical stuff with the Federation and also the little intimate stuff with like, I don't know, Odo cleaning up his office and like deciding how he's going to set up shop there and stuff. And I don't know, Kira picking her station and settling into Ducat's old office before Cisco comes and takes it from her. It'd be kind of cool. <laughs> Odo's, you know, rearranging his office. Should the bucket go here or there? <laughs> <You know? laughs> Turns it 30 degrees. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, is there anything that we haven't brought up with regards to this novel? Maybe some final thoughts you might have for Dawn of the Eagles and the Tarok Nor trilogy as a whole? I'm sure there's something that we haven't talked about because there's a lot of stuff in here. I mean, one thing that just dawned on me is Vaughn, uh, mm-hmm. Lieutenant Commander Vaughn from the novels, uh, the post-DS9 novels. He is in here briefly. And uh, so I enjoyed seeing that in here, seeing his character in the book. But um, I, I would say my final thoughts are that I'm, I'm thinking through this right now. Did I like this novel better than the others? I don't know. You know, all three novels are telling a history. It's telling the history of what went on for, you know, a half century before Deep Space Nine. And again, I said this in the last episode, the first story really felt like it was just 
kind of setting up how this all came about. And these last two novels seem more connected to closer to Deep Space Nine. And we're starting to see more familiar characters of our core characters like Kira and Odo and such. So, I mean, I okay, the trilogy as a whole, I would say... If you're a Deep Space Nine fan, this is, yeah, a must read. I think everybody will thoroughly enjoy these, especially if you just recently watched it or you know the series so well in your head. This novel is just as good as the one before. I put it, I don't even know what I rated the one before this one, but I, I put it on that same rating. But I don't know, did I give it five or four? I don't remember, but whatever <laughs> it was, it's that rating. <laughs> I'm not even going to rate it because I just want it to be the same as that one. Excellent. Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of what you said. It's, uh, I think, a must read for Deep Space Nine fans. There's a lot in here. They're very dense books, lots of characters, lots of things going on. You kind of understand why they have that glossary at the end with all the characters, because it is hard to keep them all straight. But one thing that jumped out at me from this story is these this idea of small pieces becoming part of a larger movement. And like the idea that a small ragtag band of Bajoran resistance fighters could put up a successful fight against the huge war machine of the Cardassian empire running roughshod over their planet. But it's not a small ragtag group of resistance fighters. It's small groups of resistance fighters all over the planet working together towards common cause. And you get that idea of like each group has their own little piece of the puzzle, but all together they're this huge force that can't be reckoned with because they're fighting for their homeland. They're fighting against foreign invaders coming in who will never have as much of a stake in the fight as the Bajorans do who are fighting for their home. And I know a lot of people listen to these podcasts and read Star Trek novels to escape the news of what's going on in the real world and all that sort of thing. But reading this, and especially the last probably fifth of the novel talking about the Bajoran uprising and, and all of this coming together really put me in mind of, of what's happening in Ukraine with Russia and how they're putting up this successful resistance to the invading Russian forces in a way that a lot of people didn't think was possible. There, you know, there was the, the predictions that the capital of Kiev would be taken within 48 to 72 hours. And now it's over five weeks into this invasion and the Russian forces have pulled back from Kiev now. And nobody thought that would be possible. And it's just the parallels here really struck me reading this, that, you know, the writers really got into the minds of people fighting for their homes. And I think did a really good job of, of showing how that can be successful and plausible in a way that, you know, maybe we didn't imagine before we saw it playing across our news over the last few weeks. So uh, really enjoyed this novel, really had a lot of uh, things echoing in real life for me, which is like Star Trek always does this thing where it's a, it's a futuristic setting, but it, it parallels real world events and tells us something about the world we live in. So uh, for that, um, 
And for for this novel and for the trilogy as a whole, I'm going to give it, I'd say, four out of five destroyed towers that make up this sensor net that the Cardassians can't use anymore. (laughs) There you go. I think, yeah, I'm on the same page with that. Four out of five uh, times Odo would go, "Mm." (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to Quark or something. Yeah, that's another thing. Quark. We didn't talk about that, but I liked, uh, even though he's not in this a lot, but just seeing how he got involved too, how mm-hmm. he ended up there, that uh, he was kind of just like left behind, felt like he couldn't go back home, you know, and start off, yeah. started up his uh, little uh, business there, and having his brother come join him. Yeah, and his whole relationship with Natima Lang, we got to see that play out too. That that's another one that like the authors did a good job of making that seem realistic in a way that you're like, how are these two? And you, you read it and you're like, okay, I get it. I get why Natima was where she was and Mm -hmm. what Quark saw in her and the betrayal that led her to be so angry with him when we see them in season two. It's like, okay, yeah, I get it. (laughs) Yeah. Which again, just made me think how this is not the kind of book. Like if you met a friend that said, I've never watched deep space nine. This is not, even though this takes place before that, I would not say to someone, well, read these three books first and then watch the series. To me, you really should watch the series first and then read these books. Yeah. Watch the series, read the books, then watch the series again. And then read the books again. (laughs) There you go. That's that's what I did. (laughs) Exactly. Now I'll watch the series again. (laughs) Oh, well, when you're not stuck in a repeating loop of book reading and series watching bruce where can people find you i'm on twitter at admiral underscore rex that's admiral with the underline rex i'm also occasionally been on literary treks and uh no more on star wars report because the last episode dropped a little earlier than i expected but you know surprise surprise so that's over and done with i have teased riley that i'm gonna launch star wars report 2.0 <laughs> <laughs> but we'll, we'll we'll see. That probably won't happen. But anyway, maybe. And then also, I'm at Star Trek Mission Chicago. If you're listening to this episode as it releases today, if you're at the convention, come by the book panel, Trek Beyond the Screen, at 1.45 p.m. And we have John Jackson Miller and Dayton Ward there and some other surprises, which we'll talk about on a future episode of Positively Trek. Ooh, I can't wait. Well... Uh, Thank you all so much for listening. And thank you, of course, to the Patreon supporters for all of your help in bringing these episodes to you. We could not do it without you. Check out the podcast on Twitter at Positively Trek. We're also in Goodreads. We have our Goodreads group there. You can check out books coming up and take part in discussions. Just search for Positively Trek and we'll let you into that group. And the Positively Trek discussion group on Facebook. So meet us all there. Talk about these episodes and talk about the exciting news that Bruce may be bringing you from a certain panel at Star Trek Mission Chicago. And if you're there, go to that panel. Trust me, you will not regret it. Thank you all so much for listening this week. We will see you in the next episode. Until then, as always, stay positive.
Did you know a 2018 study showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual. When I was four months pregnant, I couldn't find a prenatal I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested for heavy metals, and recently earned the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. But don't just take my word for it. Get 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.